0: Welcome to This Is What Democracy Sounds Like. I'm Kevin Prang. This program is a presentation of Metropolitan Congregations United. MCU is a community organization that brings together religious congregations, community groups, and individuals to work for a common purpose to create a better life for all residents of the St. Louis region. Today, we're going to cover several issues around incarceration in the Missouri Department of Corrections. So joining me today are Ronnie Amin, an organizer with EXPO, Ex-Incarcerated Persons Organizing, and Maria Miller, founder of Our Lives Matter and also a leader with EXPO. And Ronnie, can you start us out by just telling us about the event coming up uh, this Wednesday, December 9th? What is it and who should be attending this?
1: Okay, thank you. Thank you, Kevin. Um, uh, EXPO, uh, we are a criminal justice organization and I believe that it's important. We believe that it's important to um, give information to the general public about how the criminal justice system works and what is not working with the criminal justice system. So we just devise ways of doing so. So monthly, we have virtual discussions on various topics that adversely impact the lives of people who are in, uh, incarcerated and or transitioning into the community. So our next event will be dealing with housing discrimination for returning citizens. Um, so we have a panelist of uh, some community uh, with some organizational members and um, legal experts. Uh, we have Marlon Jackson from the Center for Women in Transition. Uh, we have Brandon Reed from Criminal Justice Ministries and we have Lauren Versman of the Equal Housing and Opportunity Council. Um, so uh, first, our first segment will be discussing why it's necessary to have this conversation, to discuss this topic. And in that, we will be discussing uh, what it actually means to deny someone uh, adequate housing and how is the transitioning person affected and how the community is affected by that denial. And we will also be discussing the parameters of housing discrimination practices, you know, some mandates and allowances of local, state, and federal laws and optical as- aspects of the Fair Housing Act.
0: Okay, great. And, and as a sort of a preview for Wednesday, uh, tell us a little bit about some of the challenges facing, uh, of, uh, the challenges of finding housing for those coming out of prison.
1: Well, um, as a, a society, as a community, um, we will want the best for people transitioning from confinement. We will want Uh, people who have had a criminal background to successfully reintegrate into the community and add to the community. But uh, challenges and hurdles are erected as barriers to uh, a a person's successful transition. One of them is jobs, and other is housing. And how can a person make a meaningful life if he has no place to live? If you don't have a place to live, how can you get appointment or other benefits or aids to help you in your transition? So it's kind of difficult for people man, to successfully reintegrate into society when these barriers are erected and so people would act, you know try to get houses, uh, go to these landlords or property managers and their applications are denied simply because they have a criminal background. But it's not even like fresh. People who are freshly or newly introduced into the community or returning to the community. You can have a a, a criminal past that spans like 20-something years, an incident that happened over 20 years ago, and they still are being denied adequate housing because of something that happened so long. And we hope to bring awareness to this and correct it. And the event will be happening this Wednesday, Wednesday night, uh, December 9th at uh, 6 o'clock. On Zoom.
0: Okay, and this is open to the general public to to open to. to... The general public, yes. Okay, in- informational. In order to get information and then act after that.
1: Yes, um, we want to bring awareness to the general public about the issues that uh, impact the lives of people transitioning, with the hopes that we can address this in uh, a healthy and balanced way. Because sometimes when we talk about criminal justice reform, a lot of people believe that, hey, these are people who have broken the law and they deserve what they got coming. But they don't understand how this is a public safety issue as well. Uh, this is a community issue. This is a humanity issue. And if we want people to successfully reintegrate into our community, we have to provide them the avenue to do so. And we cannot erect barriers in front of people's paths when they just want to live a good life in our community.
0: Yeah, and I think a lot of people don't have this understanding that they think that once, once someone is out, it's over and done and everything goes back to normal. But the lingering effects of, of someone being incarcerated and the stigma that comes with it sort of lasts for almost a lifetime, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, it lasts for a lifetime. The stigma, uh, it, 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 it um, is attached to them as long as um, they have a record. Uh, record of somebody's past. Somebody can easily look up that past and because of not just um, legitimate concerns, because if people have legitimate concerns, we understand that people want a safe environment for their patrons and and attendants. However, uh, people people should be given the opportunity to make amends for the wrong they did and allow a second chance to reintegrate into the society and contribute to the society but it's difficult to do that when you have so many barriers erected before you. Many of us make mistakes. This is supposed to be the country, the land of second chances. However, we are denying people that opportunity to have a second chance, to start a life anew.
0: And I, it, it's uh, kind of an awkward transition, but I think one of the things that's come up with the, the COVID experience is that these unintended consequences that, that you're dealing with, uh, the housing issue too, and so we look at the, the virus getting into our um, prison system, which becomes almost an extra punishment. And as, sure. as we've said before, Maria, the, these men were not sentenced to die in prison, but that is becoming the case right now. Um, what, what are some of the recent numbers that we're seeing in regards to this health crisis?
2: So the actual number as of November 24th, It was 587 active inmate cases, 199 active staff cases, active nine prisoner staff cases. The deaths were 34 at that time, okay? So if you go back to what I mentioned before about November 4th, August, August there was one death reported. November 4th, there was 10 deaths reported. November 5th, they stopped putting the database in, but November 24th, there were 34. So I'm going to go back a little bit to why that town hall meeting was held on with COVID. Like I said, there were many organizations in that meeting. And the reason for the meeting, people are really becoming aware of what's going on inside those prisons, one of the things that governor and they feel like this this was like we're saying this should not have been a death sentence to anyone, and there was a, to, they could have did something to prevent the spread of the virus, to prevent these occurrences from happening, and they were really upset because governor Parson did not make it a mandatory requirement for their staff to wear masks when coming into those facilities. So he, they feel like this could have been controlled, but because you did not make it mandatory for these masks, for these staff to wear these masks, this became uncontrollable.
1: Um, And to us outside, it's just simple, right? It's just simple. Number one, Everyone wear a mask. That's not difficult because the only way an inmate or somebody who is incarcerated can get COVID is if somebody brings it down from the outside, from a staff person. So that's basic common sense, right? And then if people do have COVID, you do not transfer them from one institution to another, right? That's logical, right? It just seems logical. And then you will house them in a part of the institution where you don't have contact with other inmates. However, this has not been a case. They have been mixing in, in inmates, uh, 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 moving them from house to house, people who are known to have COVID and live in living areas with people who do not. So this brings the question why is this happening? As a society, as a community, we have to ask why is this happening? A government agency, a government agency has shown disregard for the value of human life, you know? So we have to ask, why is this happening? And we have to uh, be proactive in trying to get this, this issue addressed.
0: Uh, so we, we talked also, we've talked about some of the practices that are continuing within these facilities that, that put those who are incarcerated at risk. What, what are some of the things that, that we're seeing that are, that are just almost just increasing the risk for the, the population within within our prison system?
1: Yeah, well, let me first start by saying that um, I'm, I'm in contact with a number of people who are in, incarcerated, and it's been relayed to me in a number of prisons that the, the COVID situation is not really been taken seriously, um, as serious as we were hoping to be, whether it's the prison guards who come to work and they don't wear their masks, not made to wear masks, or how the prison is functioning, with respect to sanitation and hygiene. Um, They're not given the proper, I mean, the the proper cleaning materials, the clean cells and clean living areas, or to medical. I just got a report um, from Bonterra as of about a week and a half ago, they haven't had a sick call in over a month. Now sick call is where you declare a medical issue. You will have to file what is called, it used to be called an MSR, now it's called a HSR, Health Service Request. And you will fill it out like you do an application and you submit it to the medical staff. And the medical staff should have um, within a day or, or two days to address your medical concerns. They will call you up, give you a pass and Call you to the medical services and then you will be seen by a nurse. Um, But as of a week and a half ago in Bonterre, they were not uh, permitted to have sick call in over a month. Now, imagine a threat to a person's uh, uh, physical body not receiving medical attention for over a month. Now, this is outside of COVID. This is just regular medical thing. Now, put that in the context of COVID. So a person may have symptoms of COVID and their medical issues are not addressed, thereby creating a hazard, not only for themselves, but for people around them. And this should be alarming to us as a society that this type of thing is going on. And if we the free people out here in society don't address it. I think it says so much about our society, but I think the opposite is true. I think that we need to get this, this, this. We need to make the public aware of what's going on in prison. Because like you said earlier, people were, because of actions, whether they were guilty or not, sentenced to prison, but they were not sentenced to die. And our courts have established that you cannot impose cruel and unusual punishment for people who are incarcerated or under the wards of the state. So we need to uh, do better in addressing the issue of COVID in prison. But my personal, my personal experience um, is, has not been a good one in terms of medical treatment in prison. I had done 25 years incarcerated and I've seen a lot with respect to my personal self, and with respect to the lives of other people. I've had uh, issues myself where I was denied adequate healthcare and it could have resulted in something grievous. Um, I remember going to medical, filling out uh, an emergency uh, medical request. First, they tried to dissuade me from doing so. They discouraged me by threatening me with punitive measures um, going to the hole or a conduct violation if it is found out that I'm faking. Now this is subjective, right? Um, so, but I, I still went forward. I said, something's wrong with me. I have bumps on me. I don't know where they came from. They said, well, if you're faking, we're gonna put you in a hole. So I go through with it and I go to medical and I see a nurse and he says, hey, there's nothing wrong. Maybe you're just allergic by the soap. No real assessment, but he just guesses I'm allergic due to the soap I'm using. So I go back to the cell. I notice that I'm getting more bumps. So I declare another medical emergency. They say, hey, if you're lying, we're going to put you in a hole. So I said, nah, something's wrong. So I go to medical and this time there are doctors present. So one nurse is Sees me, another nurse sees me. Then a nurse, another nurse comes in, and then a doctor comes in. Another doctor comes in, and then they determine that I have chickenpox. Now, chickenpox could be fatal to an adult. Not only could you know, is it, I'm, I have chickenpox, but I could give it to other people around me. And initially, they tried to dissuade me from seeing medical, and um, and then they, I had prolonged medical treatment. I mean, uh, they kept me from medical treatment. So that, and, and there are a number of issues with respect to my personal stuff, but i actually seen people die in prison because of a lack of adequate health care. Many people who I consider to be mentors in my life that helped me transition from a misguided youth to a responsible adult. Um, I remember a friend of mine, he had a, a, a medical treatment. He was very athletic for his age. He was in the upper 40s, maybe 50s. Um, he was very athletic play basketball job he was he was in good health um something happened to where he went to medical he was complaining about his and uh his lack of mobility and some other medical issues so they ran some tests well initially uh, they just tried to give him some like pain meds without giving a real assessment um but the problem persists they kept him but they were trying to say he was faking uh because uh, for whatever reason. So six months being in excruciating pain, they finally sent him out to an outside physician because of the complaint from his family. And when the outside physician seen what was going on with him, especially after the assessment, they said the nurses in the room began to cry because of the condition that he was in and made to suffer that way for such a prolonged period of time. Come to find out after a while, he had cancer. He had cancer. He could have been treated, man. He could have gotten treatment that he, he needed, um, but he died um, as, a, as, a, as the result. I believe complications are not receiving the proper medical treatment. But not only did he die, but he died in agony. I saw this man, once a picture of hell, I saw him wither away before my eyes. And it, it, it was that challenged me, you know, um, that challenged me a lot. And I seen other people whom um, there was another guy who had medical issues. He kept on fainting and, and falling out. And um, so he went to medical. And this is. Pre-9-11, and his individual was of Arab descent. But even then, pre-9-11, the negative attitudes that was um, that people had toward him, um, they would say things like, what are you doing here? These, this is the nurses, the nurses that are supposed to take care of this guy. What are you doing here, you Arab? You should have stayed home. You are terrorist." And this jovial individual, he transformed into somebody who was just uh, weighed by depression, and that affected his health as well. And his body began to swell. He did not receive uh, proper medical treatment, and he died. Um, So there are so many instances where people were healthy. All they needed was the proper medical treatment from the get-go, but they died. And not only did they die, but they died in agony. And it's known if you break a limb in prison, you're in trouble. You break a finger in prison, you're not going to be seen by a doctor until like weeks later. And by then your bones begin to set and men on, on their own. And by then you look like you're deformed. Your fingers are not going to work the way they should have worked uh, or the, the way they uh, functioned before. <laughs> it is known. It's known throughout the OC. You break a limb, you're in trouble.
0: That, that echoes some of the discussion uh, Maria and I had a, a month or two ago about someone whose jaw was broken and was not seen right away and was not getting the, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the, the correct diet um, you know, during that time. So he was not eating as well as the jaw being broken for, what was it, a couple of weeks, Maria, before he was finally seen?
2: It was actually almost two weeks. So he had to stay there in agonizing pain with a broken jaw. But what's even more worse than the broken jaw, the jaw, this man tested positive for COVID. And I began to do safety checks on him. Then he ended up with a broken jaw, an ADSEG. Then it took them two weeks to get him off for medical attention. He had to have his jaw wired shut is in a level two prison release date is in January. They sent him to Potosi saying Mm -hmm. they didn't have the proper infirmary at Pacific. And Potosi is what? Potosi is a maximum security prison further out. So that didn't make any sense to me at all. I think that was an intimidation retaliation move. That's my personal opinion. I mean, Ronnie, you've been there before. Why would you send a level two person to a level five camp saying that you don't have an infirmary to care for him with a broken jaw?
1: And there and are I mean, other lower level prisons with an infirmary that he could have probably possibly went to. Um, yeah. so, and, but it also speaks to the fact is, why don't you have the medical facility to care for people in the institution? That is the issue.
2: He said that surprised him because they do have a medical facility and that they okay. were saying that the, the infirmity is not, infirmary is not fit to care for such uh, a um, medical, you know, to do the medical process. That goes back to what we said earlier, what a person told me that I advocate for. He says, when we are here, they could do whatever they want to do to us. They could say whatever they want to say to us because nobody's out there fighting for us. So they could very well say, oh, we don't have the proper care for you. We're gonna ship you up to Potosi in the middle of a pandemic where this virus is spreading like wildflowers, sit you up in there because guess what? Now you can't make any calls. Now you don't have your tablet. Now you can't communicate with your wife. And we're gonna show you, you're gonna listen to what we say, or we're gonna send you, we can just do whatever we wanna do. We talked about this before, that man is due home in January. Why would you even hold him? You already got him with the virus. Then yep. he mysteriously ends up with a broken jaw two weeks after I do the complaints. This literally went on from August. We did that last podcast in November. So this went on for months. He had to stay up in Potosi over 30 days. Lost a tremendous amount of weight because he wasn't getting the proper diet. He was only on a liquid diet. They weren't even feeding him, you know, right. Um, It also goes back before the pandemic And as uh, Ronnie kind of touched on things Of medical issues A person that I do advocate for in Potosi Must have fell off his bunk or something They wouldn't get him proper medical attention I I wrote the letter That's how I learned about doing an ROI release of information I couldn't speak on his medical behalf Well, the wording When I got the letter out there They immediately nursing That was a nice person Um, They got him out to the hospital His bone was dislocated in two places. But he had been in that prison in Potosi for a week. It wasn't until I sent that letter out there and made that call, like, no, he is saying his bone is sticking out. You need to go, so when I you need to go see about him. So when I put that in black and white, within an hour later, she called me, she said the emblems is on the way. When they got him to the hospital, his bone his bone was dislocated in two places. And he had to stay in there for a week in that pain without proper medical attention. That's horrible.
1: There should be checks and balances in, in place to prevent type, these type of things. You have the warders who, who run the facilities, right? So they can say yay or nay to how something is facilitated or ran. And then you have the uh, directors of DOC who can say yay or nay to how things are facilitated. And then you have the governmental uh, 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 personnel uh, you have your legislators and you have a, a a governor who can say yay or nay to how things are ran. And it seems as though there is, um, uh, I don't know if there's lack of uh, competence. Um, I don't know if this stuff is willfully happening, uh, purposely happening. Um, but um, I know that I can't sit back. I can't sit back and allow these things to happen without utilizing my voice. History will reflect. Um, Where we were as a society, if we do continue to allow these things to happen unchecked, you know.
2: Now, if I can, this is one other fact I want to go into when you just said that about the directors. Jeff Norman is a director of Division of Adult Institutions. Okay, on November 9th. Now, just if you remember those numbers, how I just said they happened. But on November 9th, he made a rule or a requirement or law, whatever you call it that those who tested positive for for COVID would no longer have to test negative to be released from quarantine. After 14 days of quarantine, they can go back into general population without a negative test. And look how those numbers rose up after November 9th. Why
1: why would that happen? I'm just saying logically, man, like as a society, why are we questioning things like this? Who signs off on this? You know, because for him to do that, somebody else had a sign off on it. That's the, that's, that's the
2: point. I'm with you. Why? Why would you do that?
0: There are employers that require, if an employee has tested positive, to get a negative test before they return to work. That's the way other systems have, have been set up, because they're intentionally looking out for the well-being of the other co-workers and and the customers that would come into a business. So it it goes against even that basic business logic.
1: Yes. And not only that, well, we, we're talking about the lives of the people incarcerated. Again, people may be dismissive of it. Like, so what? They're inmates. They shouldn't have broke the law. But then you have other staff, other staff that are responsible for of uh, 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 facilitating um, the, the, the prison needs, you know? And now you make them susceptible to catching COVID, to contracting COVID, you know? So now you're showing a disregard, not only for the lives of the uh, men and women who are incarcerated, but just showing disregard for the staff that run these prisons, you know? So those are issues that we should also address too. Not just the inmates, right? I'm, I, I am pro-inmate, I'm, I'm, well, pro incarcerated person um however i am pro-life i am pro the value of the lives of another human being and now you place another employee of the state in jeopardy because of your incompetence or your inability to manage this issue that is another issue that needs to be addressed. And wow. I,
0: there was a uh, our, our, an article from tony messenger early a few weeks ago about a um a former um, corrections officer, someone who was hired in April and uh, was, was in contact with somebody that turned out to have the virus. And so she quarantined herself, not wanting to bring it back into the facility. Um, and then she started getting in trouble with her employer. And what it's turning out too, is that the, the, the union for the corrections officers has been d- diminished in its power. In the under, under Governor Parsons so mm-hmm. that the, the organization that's in place to fight for the employees, for the corrections officers, has its power diminished, and so she wasn't backed up, and she basically walked away and said, I can't do this anymore. You know, I'm putting, I'm putting my life in danger as well as everybody else's life.
1: And that's what's happening, too. There have been uh, a number of staff who have quit um, and a lot of the prisons are understaffed now. Um, so that now that becomes an issue.
0: That just multiplies everything we're talking about. Oh my goodness,
1: that compounds the issue so greatly. Yeah.
2: <laughs> they oh were already goodness. short-staffed before the pandemic. So now you have a a bigger shortage because of purpose or incompetence. I'm not sure which one we'll call it, but... You yes. are trained. these people know their jobs and their roles. I'm sorry, I, I believe that especially we're not talking about the guards, we're talking about the people in positions like Jeff Norman and Preside, Governor Parson. It doesn't take a rocket scientist. The kids know to wear a mask and to social distance. Those people incarcerated can't social distance. they it took them forever to get a mask. When we were out here preparing, ourselves for this pandemic, they should have been preparing up at MDOC. They had inmates to make masks. They didn't spend money on going to get these people proper masks. There was a time it was a big issue with the masks being as thin as a thin sheet that they were having them work from dusk to dawn to make. So they didn't take any precautions to try to control this. Instead, like we're saying, transferring them from different facilities, transferring them from different housing units, just letting it spread. People have literally been held inside the Department of Corrections that were supposed to be released to come home to their families because they've tested positive. They had to stay in prison.
0: That was the other thing I wanted to bring up. Uh, There's that happening. And then also they've stopped the parole process, correct?
2: They will tell you that they have not. There's a letter Don Phillips sent out. He's the chairman of parole. He says in this letter, we will not be releasing anyone due to COVID, but those that are supposed to come home will come home. That's not true. They will eventually come home after they get through with the numbers games and whatever they're doing, but they have held people in prison that had outdates for months. Due to COVID, and we'll go back to the one we talked about the end up with the broken jaw. If you know that this man is in your facility and he's tested positive for COVID because of your negligence and suffered a broken jaw with an outdate of January 20th, why wouldn't you send him home to his family? Right, right. But instead he puts out a letter saying they're not releasing anyone due to COVID. Right. I think we talked about it. New Jersey put it in a court. So for a court order to begin to release, I think it was May, inmates due to COVID, so they can go home alive to their families. Missouri still has not changed anything about this, right. but here now we're up to 34 deaths.
0: Have you heard anything about, uh, have, have video visits actually been implemented? We talked about that a month ago. Has that progressed at all?
2: No, Kevin, and I told you then I'm really interested to see how this will go. It's supposed to start in Jefferson, uh, Jefferson City and start going through other camps, other facilities. And before I said this, that was one of the requirements. Missouri is like the only state that does not have video visits. Back in January, I guess that's when they up redo their policies and procedures. Our Missouri Department of Corrections director or whoever gives the say so, the chain of command is push a button is what I'm being told from those incarcerated. They did not push their button, whether it was on purpose. Now, this is even before COVID came out because, again, all around the states, people have video visits. You may have a sick mother that can't come and get on the highway to come and see you, but like we're on this Zoom, they can see each other. So Missouri is like the only state that before the pandemic, they did not have it. But now that we're in this pandemic, people have not seen their family members or their loved ones in all these months.
1: And I think a, a very important thing to say, and that's very important when we talk about family, you know, families and loved ones. And again, you know, people on the outside would say, so what, they're locked up, they don't deserve that. But you don't really, they don't really understand the value and impact that a family can have on someone's rehabilitative process and um, whether they come out of the prison better off than they went in. And that's what happened for me. Uh, My transformation not only was born out of my desire just to be different. I know that this is not the existence that I want, but I knew I had harmed my family with my absence. I had harmed my family with my action you know, and I wanted to be a better person. And my family support was so instrumental in my transformation uh, along the way. And not only that, but it's just the human connection as a community and as a society. We want to promote our humanity above everything else, you know, and that doesn't seem to be happening when we talk about the criminal justice system or particularly the Missouri Department of Corrections. And that narrative has to change. We have to change that. It has to be about the quality of our human existence, and um, so that is just for those people who say why, you know. Um, and it's known; every criminologist or sociologist would tell you about the impact of the family upon upon somebody who is um, um, in prison or uh, attempting to rehabilitate themselves, and even countries that are regarded as uh, not I, I don't I don't want to be offensive to say third world, but you know, United States, they they kind of put themselves above other countries, other forms of life around the world, other ways of life around the world. But in Mexico, I remember reading an article that they had about a prison they had uh made on this island, right? And they done something like that was like very crazy. It was a crazy idea. They permitted. And this is kind of a little off the topic, but on the topic. They permitted the family to live amongst the prison population. And then people were asking, why the, in the world will you do this? And we say, and the, the prison officials and the governmental officials say, we don't believe that the family should suffer for the mistakes of the one, for the one. Now, of course, when we think of prison, we think of what we see on TV or what is in actual, you know, prison, the violence and everything else but this was more so a community where the person can focus on their transformation. They can focus on contributing back to society or their own community, the greater community. But I'm not saying that we should do this. I'm not saying that this should be done here, but what I'm saying is that we should approach, we should approach justice in a very different way. We should approach incarceration in a very different way. We have to include the human element and that includes Uh, uh, promoting family. So this is why we should say video visits should be afforded to people who are incarcerated, who can't have the physical uh, visits because of COVID. We have to promote the the very human uh, uh, um, um, aspect to our approach to rehabilitation.
2: I'm, I'm, I'm looking at family members right now, wives, mothers, those relationships are at a strain. Some wives and kids haven't seen their husband and fathers since March. But as you were describing it, I remember my brother, he was sent to Crossroads Correctional Facility, which was, it took us five hours to get there. Mm-hmm. And when you were saying that, you know, these people are humans and uh, you love your family no matter what they say they did. Like you said, some of these people go to prison for things that they did and some go for some things that they didn't do. But whatever it is, you love your family. And if they were to offer that here, I believe that some people would move close to those prisons to be with their family. I remember we had to travel five hours to go see my brother. So what we would do is we would rent a 15 passenger van. We would leave out on a Friday morning so we can get there for that Friday evening visit. A group of us would go Friday a group of us would go Saturday morning, the other group would go Saturday afternoon and a group of us will go Sunday morning and then we would come back. Because in the saddest thing about the, leaving there, I used to get so sad because I'm like, when will we be able to come back? Because we have to rent the van, get hotel room, pay for the gas. So when will we be able to do this again? So it's like ripping your family away. So when you get into those visits, this is why I say the system isn't it's, it's not designed for us. I mean, people make mistakes. It just has to become better all the way around. So, and it, it, it puts a strain not only on those incarcerated, but their families as well. As all these months go past and you're not able to lay eyes on your loved one, then they're putting them in ad sex. So, you can't even call to say, I'm okay.
0: I think all of this that we're talking about today is about making sure that we're taking care of the whole human and, and looking out for the future. So of, of, of individuals. So whether it's healthcare provided inside the prisons or the, the visits with family is about, um, both supporting that whole individual right here and now, but also about building something better for what comes next. And I'm gonna bring us back around to um, the the issue of housing um, when someone is outside of prison. And as we wrap things up, Ronnie, can you remind us again about the event that's coming up uh, this, this Wednesday on December 9th?
1: Yes, sir. Um, I would like to strongly encourage those of us out here in the community to uh, attend our uh, Expos uh, virtual discussion through Zoom on housing discriminatory practices against returning citizens. It would be Wednesday at six o'clock, uh, December 9th. And in that discussion, we'll be dis- we will be um, going over why it's important for us to have this discussion, what it means to actually deny adequate housing to people transitioning, how is the transitioning individual affected and how is the community affected? And I think that's the bottom line. How is the community affected? Because we have to understand that these issues are community issues, and we wanna promote the best for our community.
0: Okay, great. And I see that that information about joining that is on the Expo St. Louis Facebook page.
1: Expo St. Louis or uh, MCU, MCU's
0: website. MCU has the information also, correct. Uh, So uh, at Expo, S-T-L, is the uh, Facebook page for Expo. And then also mcustlewis.org is where you can find information uh, from MCU. Maria, uh, once again, give us some contact information for you if someone needs to reach out and is looking for help uh, navigating the Department of Corrections.
2: And I'm Maria Miller. Um, I am a leader with Expo founder of Our Lives Matter. I can be reached at at gmail.com. or you can reach me on Facebook. There you will find my contact phone number and information on how to reach me. Expo MCU will be doing a call of action following the virtual meeting at the Dismas house.
1: Yes, the call of action would be Thursday, December 17th at noon at the Dismas House. Um, and we're having a call of action to bring attention and awareness to the treatment of those housed within the Dismas House. Um, the Dismas House is somewhat of a halfway house or transitional house from people exiting the uh, federal corrections uh, system. And however, uh, the the climate, the environment, the conditions of the dismissed house are dismal. Um, it is not safe. Uh, it doesn't provide or promote uh, rehabilitation or, or transitional services for the people incarcerated. There was an individual who had lost their life in a dismissed house because somebody shot him in a dismissed house. How in the world, in a federal facility, can somebody walk in there with a gun and shoot someone else? So we want to bring um, awareness to what's going on in the Dismas House. Their, their contract is open for uh, for to be renewed next week. And we are asking that their contract is not renewed. Um, and that is the purpose of our action uh, Thursday, December 17th at noon at the Dismas
0: House. Great, thank you for that information. I think that, that the, those steps to what do we do now are so important because we've laid out a lot of information, a lot of stories here today about conditions and it can feel overwhelming um, and, and having this opportunity to join together and move forward and actually push back on these problems um, I think is, is a source of hope. Um, and I'm hoping you guys are feeling that too. Uh, so thank you, Ronnie Amin, an organizer with Expo, Ex-Incarcerated Persons Organizing, and Maria Miller, founder of Our Lives Matter, and also with Expo. Uh, a reminder again, check us out, uh, MCU Metropolitan Congregations United at mcustlewis.org. Also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm Kevin Prang, and you have been listening to This Is What Democracy Sounds Like. Tune in again next time, and thank you for listening.